Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to explore the way that physicists can use the International Space Station and microgravity experiments down here on Earth. We'll hear from Libby Jackson, the Human Exploration Programme Manager at the UK Space Agency. And we'll hear from Professor Marco Marengo, Professor of Thermal Engineering at the University of Brighton, whose experiments are on their way to space. And we'll discover how it's quite possible that you might be able to send your experiments to the International Space Station. That's all coming up. But first, I'd like to thank Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this podcast. Pfeiffer Vacuum has been producing innovative end-to-end vacuum solutions since 1890 and over the years has collaborated with some of the largest and most ambitious scientific experiments. You'll even find their vacuum technology being used on board the International Space Station. Pfeiffer Vacuum's turbo pumps and vacuum gauges are part of the Material Science Laboratory Electromagnetic Levitator, an experiment that will study the behaviour of alloys and reactive materials held in place by electromagnetic fields rather than crucibles or containers that might contaminate the material. This space-based experiment aims to improve the properties of these materials for industrial applications here on Earth. If that wasn't enough, you'll also find Pfeiffer Vacuum at CERN and the Wendelstein 7X nuclear fusion reactor, the European XFEL and other large experiments around the world. You can find out more about our sponsors today, Pfeiffer Vacuum, at pfeiffer-vacuum.com. But this episode actually began back in June of this year when I was making our episode of the Physics World Stories podcast for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. I spoke to Libby Jackson of the UK Space Agency then, and Libby told me about these exciting ways that physicists can use the International Space Station. I wanted to find out more, so I hopped on the train for the short journey from Bristol to Swindon, where the UK Space Agency are are based. Arriving in Swindon train station... There's no signage for the UK Space Agency, that I could see at least. And tucked away in one corner, there's almost a secret entrance to a bridge tunnel, which takes you across the railway tracks and into the business estate, where the UK Space Agency are based. There, I met Libby Jackson, and I began by asking her what the UK Space Agency does do with human space flight. And so many things. It, it's, the, it's the big, obvious stuff that people know at the International Space Station and Tim Peake and uh, astronauts carrying out science there. But there's also a whole range of other facilities that UK researchers have access to on the ground. Things like parabolic flights, which um, give you 30 seconds of, of weightlessness at a time. There are drop towers where you get just a few seconds. Um, sounding rockets, we've got isolation studies and bed rest studies and lots of different things going on in lots of different disciplines where researchers are doing science finding out knowledge Libby had the chance to go on the parabolic flight or is it sometimes known the vomit comet it's, it's a really great way if you want to do some research if you want to take gravity out of the equation and, and figure out what happens to your material or your processes or your fundamental thing that you are interested in um Sometimes you want to go all the way to the space station where you have microgravity all the time. But you can do a lot in 30 seconds. What happens to a flame? What happens to particles? What happens to um, cells? 
what happens to the human body and you can see that on a on a 30 second period of time so an airbus i think it's an a320 with four people at the controls three pilots flying one back up they swap around flies in parabolas and you get 2g to begin with and then they, they fly you through this parabola and you get 30 seconds of weightlessness 30 times in a flight do the scientists go on that to do the experiments on they do with the parabolic flight makes it in my opinion one of the best facilities that we've got in a six-month period on the space stations there are about 200 experiments going on but most of those are run by mission control the astronauts put them somewhere let them run controlled remotely the parabolic flight experiments are the ones where the uh, researchers get to go with the experiment they get to fine-tune it they even get to just sit there and monitor it for the most period of time. One of those scientists is Professor Marco Marengo of the University of Brighton. And Marco is no stranger to the parabolic flights. Uh, the campaign in April would be my campaign number 17. <laughs> just to say, these campaigns are the experiments that see Marco go on the vomit comet. So, uh, of course, uh, not you know, in, uh, in um, many campaigns, I left my my students, my collaborators are flying. Uh, so at the end, I have almost 500 parabolas only. I could have many more, but <laughs> uh, what is interesting is also to leave, uh, let's say, the two of your collaborators in the plane to live in this experience. Uh, the, the idea is, therefore, to perform parabolic flights in microgravity, you have only 20 seconds of microgravity for each parabola, but you have 31 parabolas in one day, and you have three days of experiment. And most important, the most important point is that the scientist is, where, is with your his experiment. So the experiment yeah. is flying with the scientist, which is very, very important, very peculiar. Because, for example, when you're doing sounding rocket, for example or you're doing an experiment now in the future, maybe with suborbital flight, or on the ISS even, you have astronauts doing the experiments, or in the Sandy rocket, you don't have any, anybody with your experiment. So it's completely automatic. In a parabolic flight, this is, and you have the unique chance to have your experiment with you. So if something is happening, you can change even the, the experiments or let's say the matrix of the of the uh, of the experiment. Let's say when you are testing it. So when you are in the, in the plane, which is really unique, is very interesting. If everything is running properly, which is uh, uh, luckily most of the cases is like that, you have also time for a little bit of fun inside the, the plane. And the uh, the first time that is happening to you, the the, the experience is quite uh, is is quite unique. It's something like a dream because uh, you don't feel anymore your weight. You are uh, looking around. You are let's say dancing, floating. Uh, and for example, when you are going to the fun area, there is a, an area that, let's say where you can play with the microgravity environment in the sense that, for example, I walk on the ceiling of the, of the plane, or, for example, I, I, <coughs> I, grab, I grab one of my collaborators and I throw him like, you know, the fantastic force. <laughs> I was able to, to take him and to <laughs> launch him against another guy. 
<laughs> because of course without gravity there is no weight so you can even play with the with the body let's say with the someone else and um, so uh, with the experiment itself is very interesting because uh, the sensation at the beginning is strange but then you are let's say you are getting used to this kind of condition and you can look for example i, I remember once when i i checked one experiment inside the the system that i turned my head and i was with my my legs on the ceiling looking at my experiments with my head at the bottom it's really an experience that is uh is making your science you, yeah, usually we are very interested in science, we are very interested in uh, making experiments, and this experience is a kind of top-up, it's adding something even more uh, in terms of experience, feelings, and so on. So like, you are almost excited, let's say, in, uh, in doing this kind of, uh, of uh, microgravity experience. I remember one uh, Russian professor he was always trying to have this kind of project. At the, at the given moment, he said, "Oh, you are microgravity addicted, my friend." <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it's difficult not to become rather partial to it. Uh, we'll come back to Marco later and find out what experiments he's been doing in microgravity. But back at the UK Space Agency, Libby Jackson told me about her experience on the parabolic flights. I have been very lucky. I, I was given the opportunity to be part of um, Professor Marco Marengo's team. I was part of the team that was looking at the cameras to make sure that we captured all these things. And indeed, the cameras stopped working halfway through one of them. So that is why you have the people there to, to troubleshoot, to fix it. And you get to you know experience doing your experiment in weightlessness. That's amazing. The science is great. Brilliant. But tell me about the experience. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. But it feels so normal after a while. And I, I start to understand why, why the astronauts miss it so much. The very first time it happens, um, you get you get a test run parabola. So, so actually, you say there's 30 parabolas, you get 31. Parabola zero is the test run. And you sit there, and you're all a bit nervous because the first time, you've all you've gone and got your injections of scopolamine to make sure that you're not sick, you don't you know, uh, vomit everywhere in the vomit comet. Mm-hmm. Um, you've given the safety briefing, you've got this plane, and, and I I get nervous when I don't know what's going to happen. So, so it's like, okay, what's it going to be like? And they tell you you've got to keep your head very still for the 2G phase, because that's where if you start moving it around, that's where the blood moves and your, your balance goes, and that's how you feel sick. So it's very, very stable. And then they count it down um, as the plane goes through. And they go three, two, one, injection. And that's when you start floating, and suddenly your stomach lifts, and and there's this noise across the plane. And everyone goes, oh, because you all simultaneously feel it for the first time. And I, I think those who've done it loads of times know, but most people on the plane haven't. Um, and you and you just go, oh, and suddenly you look around and you're floating. But and, and then it's and then it's brilliant. And then by the tenth parabola, you've got this nailed, and it just is completely natural to just lift off the ground and you know and float and and grab things and things float in front of you and and then you all sink back down but in the meantime everyone's really busy and focused on their research so it, and occasionally you might manage to miss a parabola if your friends doing it to go and they've got a little cage something we're sitting here doing a podcast and so i have to describe where we are but we're in a room and it's what, three meters by five meters and, and if you they have a cage it's about that it's about three by three by four meters 
and there you can go and have fun and there's somebody there to make sure that you're you're not going to injure yourself because when suddenly you go from uh weightlessness back to 2g you thump down to the floor and if you are you know head down you can do bad injuries to yourself if yes. suddenly you yeah, land on the floor the wrong way up so they do look after you it does all sound like a huge amount of fun, but there is also serious research going on. And Professor Marco Marengo told me why he uses the microgravity flights. Our experiment is um, dealing with a thermal device called the pulsating heat pipe. The pulsating heat pipe is a two-phase heat transfer system. Uh, means that uh, inside the system we have a phase change from liquid to vapor. And uh, the system is made by a meandering tube, a, a tube, very simple tube without anything special. It a, a, can be a copper tube or an aluminium tube, tube that is bented in a meanderings, let's say. You know? so, and uh, what is happening is, uh, uh, so it's very simple to see, but what is happening inside the system is quite complex. And because uh, inside the systems you have the, flu and the flow of uh, slug plugs, so you have uh, vapor plugs and liquid slugs inside the system which are oscillating, pulsating or circulating inside the system. And um, the physics behind this process is quite complex. And this is the reason why we are still trying to understand how to design the system how it's possible to have the best system for the different uh, heat conditions, heating and cooling conditions. This system is capillary, means that the liquid slugs are completely filling the tube. This is happening on ground. In space, since uh, you don't have gravity, what is happening is that you can have a bigger tube because the liquid can fill the tube even if it's a big one. Otherwise, in the ground, you have stratification. You are, say, for example, the fact that the liquid is going on one side of the tube and is not filling completely the tube. But since the uh, <laughs> interface forces, the, 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 the capillary forces are very important in space, what is happening is that you can have a kind of uh, uh, upscaling of the system that you cannot have in ground. So, for example, we cannot have our system with a tube of uh, four millimeters in ground because you have this kind of liquid and vapor separation and the liquid is not able to fill completely the section of the tube. In space, without gravity, this is possible. And what does it mean at the end is uh, what is important to say is that uh, if you have a larger tube, you can uh, deal even with higher heat fluxes and with higher powers. So the system is even more interesting when you're going to space. And therefore, this is the, the research about this, uh, this kind of device is, uh, is becoming very interesting when you have really the chance to uh, do an experiment in microgravity, both on parabolic flights or in, uh, uh, and in, uh, on the International Space Station. Marco's experiments are due to go to the International Space Station in the coming years. More on that later. Libby told me that the parabolic flights are not restricted to professors and directors of human spaceflight at space agencies. There's um, great opportunities on these parabolic flights. Not only do all UK researchers have the ability to, to go and apply for these at any time, I should, I should mention. 
Um, there's also student programs. So uh, people who are um, doing their theses, um, there's this Fly Your Thesis program. You can go and apply to do that. Um, and so when I was there, there was somebody who was um, doing a piece about this to promote that side of the work. Um, so there, it really is um, a facility that the UK Space Agency via the European Space Agency provides to everybody here in the UK. Yeah. And I don't think enough physicists are out there thinking, what do I do if I take gravity out of the equation? What can I learn about my field of research? And, and you can start in a parabolic flight, you can take it onto the space station. So uh, what, what, what's the cost involved? Depends who you're asking and at, at which point. To a researcher, if they're going there. Um, the facility access costs to drop towers or parabolic flights or, or these things are already covered thanks to the UK Space Agency. So the UK Space Agency, with taxpayers' money, um, is a member of the European Space Agency. We subscribe to different programmes. There's a big meeting at the end of this year where all of the different countries get together and we're all going to agree how much money we give to the European Space Agency. The UK is part of the exploration program and that exploration program provides these facilities and so uh, they have there is this continuously open research announcement for all the ground facilities there's radiation facilities there's say there's the drop towers there's the parabolic flights there's even things like um, treadmills where you can suspend yourself and, and and go and do walking things and I, I struggle to think how physicists may find that interesting, but you never know. So there are all of these things, and and we contribute to those facilities, and in turn, any UK researchers can access them. So if if their um, research is is already funded, or through that you go, I would like to build a parabolic, you know, go on a parabolic flight to do this, you can apply. You have to go and fund your own time. You have to fund the experiment through the usual um, scientific funding routes. Um, the UK Space Agency isn't. Um, a science funding body would provide the facilities for scientists. But that those ground facilities um, are there all the time. And the same is true actually for um, ISS experiments. The call is not continuously open. There are not. But there will be um, physical science calls coming up in the future, we hope. And then, yeah, you apply and the experiment build, the flight and so on is all already funded thanks to the UK Space Agency and the European Space Agency. Okay. So we, we'll get to the International Space Station. Mm. Oh, that would be fun. <laughs> and we, we'll talk about mm. it. Uh, <laughs> tell me about the drop towers. So there's a drop tower in Bremen. I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's about 100 metres tall. Well, not bad. It's 150 metres high. And, and you get about six seconds of, of microgravity. There's a great video uh, that maybe you link to um, of ESA's education mascot called Paxi doing this drop. Uh, and it's really nice because you just get to see what's happening and, and so on. But basically, fundamentally, there is a platform, sort of circular thing. I, I, I think it's about... 40 centimetres, 30, 40 centimetres across. And you can build your experiment on there. Gets hoisted up to the top of this tower in Bremen. Gets dropped. Then falls through this vacuum tunnel. Of course, it's in free fall, just like everything is um, in orbit. And you get seconds of, of um, uh, weightlessness. And again, in that time, then you can do research to go, well, what happens in, in these uh, scales? And for, for many processes, you only need a few seconds because they're, they're happening um, at this time. And so, again, you can you can go there. It's available um, access all the time. Um, build your experiment, go and load it up and do drop after drop after drop to discover whatever it is that you want to go and discover. Okay. And does it, so people apply through you, do they? No, they apply through the European Space Agency. Um, there's a website... Um, 
uh, out there. It's it's the ESA website. It's not always perhaps the easiest one to find. It, it, it's it's research announcement. It's a long page. They are always very welcome to get in touch with me, and I always advise anyone for that if if they're trying to do this and and they don't understand these websites they can't find it they've got questions about funding or the processes and so on it is my job i'm here to help and, and to point people in the right direction um if anyone follows me on twitter pinned at the very top of my profile is the link um to where to go to, to apply for all these things um and you yeah you apply um say for, for these ground facilities uh, it's always open uh, if people did want to follow you on Twitter, how yes. would they do that? Uh, they would uh, head to Twitter uh, and they would search for Libby Jackson with two underscores at the end. Okay. But I'm the Libby Jackson with the blue tick. Now, I did promise you that this podcast would be about how physicists can use the International Space Station. For most of us, it's anything from a very fast-moving bright light in the night sky to a symbol of international collaboration, the way things should be done. But to scientists... It is... A unique facility where we do research has been built for science it is about 100 meters long 80 meters wide long wide whichever way you want it, it's it's everyone says it's about the size of a football pitch it's about the size of a five six bedroom house we have um, usually six people living and working in space people have been there continuously since 2000 the space station itself is is over 20 nearly 21 years old it was first launched in 1998 so we've had this fantastic facility that allows you to do research that you can't do anywhere else on Earth or off Earth at the minute. The six astronauts are there living and working. They work a, a Monday to Friday week. They have to clean the space station Saturday morning. But they're there to do science. So so many people see the, the great photographs, the great videos. You know, We know there are people in space, but I swear some people think that they're just there <laughs> hanging out I, as... Jeremy Paxman said in, in a, to my mind, a famous interview with Tim Peake, but probably no one's ever heard it, but you can go and find it. He just kept going, but what are you going to be doing? Are you, why? Are you just going to be hanging out? And, and Tim keeps going, no, we're, we're doing really good science. And um, yeah, it, it, it was a strange interview, but no, they are definitely not just hanging out, having a good time looking at the stars. They, they do do that because, you know, we don't make them work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're allowed to sleep and have have some downtime. Yeah. Is that, um, is, just going back to that, yeah. so do, do the astronauts all go on the parabolic flights? Yeah, they do. Um, part of their training, you know, they get used to experiencing weightlessness. They start to, to learn how to control things because everything, of course, still has mass. So you can move these giant racks with your finger, but they're still going to hit into things that the laws of physics don't cease to apply. And so part of their training is to, to go and... and figure this out on on parabolic flights but even then that's where you start going okay you've experienced it you know what to experience but still when you go into space you don't get 30 seconds you're you are there weightless until you come home again so your body has to adapt you feel sick or many people feel sick for a few days um and it takes a, a, quite a you know week or two for, for astronauts to really learn but or, or learn how to cope with the fact that when you open a bag everything's going to fly out and explode and you're grabbing things all over the place and it doesn't all just fall to the um, floor. And you, the only way to really get used to that is to go and live and work in space. While he isn't going to be living and working in space, Professor Marco Marengo's experiments are destined for the International Space Station. It's said that the parabolic flights are really very good because the scientists are flying with the, the experiments. 
On the other side, the experiment can last only 22 seconds. You can have a lot of repetition, of course, as I said, 31 parabola per day, three days means 93 parabolas. But each parabola is only 22 micro, uh, microgravity, let's say, 22 seconds of microgravity. For some experiments, 22 seconds is too short. So and this is what is happening to us in the sense that now uh, our, let's say, device was already tested, but we would like to have, uh, let's say, a longer duration of microgravity in order to study the so-called steady-state condition. In order to study steady-state condition, which is in fact the condition that you have in, on a satellite, for example, you need the longer duration, and the longer duration is only possible on the International Space Station or on a satellite itself, or on, uh, let's say, in space probes. And, but then ESA selected our experiments for the heat transfer host, is one of the three experiments for the heat transfer host. And hopefully we are going to have our experiments on the International Space Station in 2021, let's say 2022. I mean, that's pretty exciting, right? Ah, yes. It's uh, something like, uh, the, I mean, it's one of the things that you're always dreaming when you are a scientist, right? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine you sitting down for dinner for the rest of your life and talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> And now um, we have a big project, let's say, is an ESAMAP project with 20 partners. We had a, a previous project with uh, uh, more than 10 partners, and I believe that now we are, we are really very close to have these experiments on board of the International Space Station. My dream was uh, to have also Team Peak with our experiment, because this is one of the very, very few experiment, UK's experiments on the International Space Station. So, but it seems that it's a little bit difficult to synchronize the second mission of Team Peak with the experiments, because they are following two different paths in terms of decisions and so on. Well, you can't have it all, I guess. If you are a physicist listening and you're thinking that maybe you might like to see how your experiment works in microgravity, you're probably wondering what you need to do. Figure out how, what research you want to do. Everybody says to me, I want to go and do stuff in space because it's cool. And they, they, you know, people, students come up to me, how do I become a space researcher? Well, you go and find a field you're interested in and you may then find that your research has an element that can be done in space. We don't do research in space just because it's cool. So in your field, you go, well, if, if, if taking gravity out of the equation helps you understand your molecules, your processes, how things work. Well, then you've got the sort of you know start of an experiment. A lot of um, ESA experiments come out of their things called topical teams. So ESA will support any group of researchers who want to get together and look at a topic and, and look at how um, space might help, space might be developed, and they'll support them um, with funding for travel and meetings so they can come together. So there are topical teams that, that researchers can join. There are lists on ESA's website where you can go and see them. You can even set up new ones. If, if everybody suddenly come together listening to this and go, I have never thought about this before, but actually getting rid of gravity, that's going to help me understand whatever it is. I, I can't even begin to imagine what the amazing research that's going on there. You can come together and have a topical team. Usually then, if you've got an idea... It's hard often just to jump straight to the International Space Station, especially in the world of physical sciences, because you've got to 
figure out how things work. It, it's a sequence. And that's where perhaps um, drop tower experiments or parabolic flight experiments start. Um, and, and you sort of build this roadmap. But eventually it is then as simple as uh, waiting for a call for the, the ISS to come out. Um, putting in your, your research and your idea and you know subject to peer review and, and so on and if it comes out the top well then it gets selected and, and then you're into defining the experiment and working with ESA and figuring it out how it goes because on the International Space Station we have limited power and limited resources and you can't take a lab you know if you've, you're used to a lab in, on Earth which is the size of a room with no constraints on space or size you can't do that. You, you've got to get it into something that can go to the space station that is going to be safe, that isn't going to injure the crew. And so all of these factors then get into um, how you you design it and you develop it. And it can take years, but eventually you then have an experiment going to the space station, you get the data back, and it's, it's just another piece of data in your wider research thing. But if you're listening and if you are a uh, physicist who is trying to come up with new materials to make ships go faster or uh, understand the aerodynamic processes of aeroplanes because you want to make a, a better aeroplane engine and you go oh space could do that too you can buy space on the international space station now you can rent it there are companies where you can go and pay um, funds and they'll support you with the development and the flight it's quicker it can be cheaper you keep your own ip you keep your own results uh, and you can take your own thing, get it on the space station and have it done within a year. So if funding is, is not an issue, and I know different people come from different worlds where they have different funding sources, or if you have the funding available, that's a route that anyone can take now. Um, do you have a, 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 a steer on how much that costs? At the minute, a uh, Ice Cubes, for example. Ice Cubes are a company where you can ha have a 10 by 10 by 10 centimetre cube, standard cube. <laughs> Uh, and I think that that is £40,000 for four months, okay. which is not too yeah. shoddy, really, when you think, you know, it goes to the space station and back. Uh, it's an area that we the research that is uh, new and something that the European Space Agency is supporting, the UK Space Agency is supporting it, because where we see the low-Earth orbit community going, communities are all over, the, the, the marketplace, the, 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 the landscape, I suppose, perhaps, strange in space <laughs> it's that it's got to become more commercial the the government's agencies the, the plan is that we would like one day to send humans to explore Mars we're talking about sending humans back to the moon in the coming decades those steps out into the solar system cost money and we can't afford to do all of that and keep the International Space Station running just as a government institutionally funded research platform just as aeroplane travel started out as something that you know had funding and so on now you have commercially operated airplanes you've got commercially operated um communication satellites the concept is maybe one day there'll be a commercially operated space station that sure i will still make sure there is funding available for people to to do their fundamental research but it's also open to anybody who wants to go and do commercial research commercial manufacturing and and then you have a, a model that has transitioned from from where we are today to something more commercial in the future so I, yeah, I watched Gravity again recently. There's a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing that happens in that. The International Space Station yes. blows up in it. Just gone. <laughs> Will it go one day? Will it go one day? There's a question. Um, it's now um, 
all the agreements are getting put in place to extend it out till 2030. So okay. until recently, we were talking 2024, which seemed pretty um, near. We're now all uh, in agreement getting signed off that it's, it's going to go till 2030. So we've got another 10 years. That's, that's a load of time to do a load of exciting research. What happens beyond then? We'll look and see how the uh, structures are holding up, how, how, you know, how it's aging. One day, yeah, it will cease to operate and it will be replaced with something else. And at that time, I imagine it will be deorbited, um, not explode into, into a million pieces. The <laughs> orbital debris for that would be a nightmare and would ruin orbits that we all depend on every day for our telecommunications, our navigation, the things that space gives us. The Mir space station was deorbited and that um, re-entered the Earth and is some of it is lying at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean because it didn't all happen. But there will be a very interesting challenge for, for some engineers and, and uh, scientists to figure out how you bring this thing home because it is so big and it's much bigger than the Mir space station ever was. Um, but we're not there yet. We've got a lot more science still to do. Yeah. We do. You just made me think about diving down to the Mir space station. Is that possible? It's not there in one piece. There's blackened and charred lumps and bumps. It re-entered and it burnt up, but it was still so big that there were, you know, you could see meteors um, coming in and lumps of it there. The bottom of the Pacific Ocean is a spacecraft graveyard, so you could probably dive down to the bottom trenches in a robotic space, robotic submersible, if you knew where to go. But I think you'd be hard pushed to tell a rock from a, you know. Another rock. Okay, I'll put away my diving suit. But the day that I was at the UK Space Agency, Libby Jackson had been on the radio that morning announcing another opportunity for the International Space Station. The UK Space Agency has put out a call offering any any commercial enterprise uh, up to a million pounds of, of match funding to do business in space. So this is um, a joint collaboration between me and Exploration and my colleagues in, in business applications. And as I was saying, the space station is going to be, we want it to become this commercial entity. And there are opportunities where you can imagine a business model, which is using space to, to help you. There are many people now who use data from space, Earth observation data that's looking at the Earth, satellite navigation data, communications data, all of these things enable businesses. And what we're talking about now is, well, if you go into space, what can you do there? You can use the, the weightless environment take gravity out of the equation and build things that you can't build on Earth. Fibre optic cables have impurities when you build them on Earth because of gravity. If, if you can manufacture them in space, you can make them much more pure. And um, I think I'll, I'll get the numbers wrong, but I think, you know, sort of standard um, transmission length might be 10 kilometres. That same fibre could then be many hundreds of kilometres because it's so much purer. And so there are people who are going, well, can I manufacture things in space? bring them back to earth and then the costs and, and everything of, of getting it to space and back that that's part of the business model but then it's it's you know worthwhile doing it because what you get back on earth is, is something that can be sold can 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 be part of a business model and so that's that's the call that's out at the minute we've got people if you've got ideas for a business model that uses space uses facilities like the ice cubes or the bioreactor express facilities as services i should say on orbit submit a business idea uh, by the 20th of November. It's a pretty short application form. They'll be reviewed and if there's any good business ideas in there, we'll look at them further and say offer um, up to a million pounds uh, match funding and a flight to the ISS to, to see where this goes. 
What do you mean by a flight to the ISS, but to see where that goes? Well, what we're looking for are business ideas that would be repeat customers, you know, fly many times, manufacture something, space flown consumer products, these sorts of things. We'll fund the first one. So back to that ICQ's value, about, about £40,000. We'll, we'll, we'll support the first flight to Ice Cubes or to Bioreactor Express. But what we're going to be looking for are, are um, ideas that, that would have many ones. And, and, and those f- future flights would be, uh, we would be looking forward to be in the business models. Oh. And are they going up on Soyuz rockets? So the two services that we're offering are Ice Cubes and Bioreactor Express. Um, both of which are in the Columbus module. So they would most likely fly up on a Dragon or a Cygnus cargo vehicle because that's how most of the cargo goes. The the Soyuz um, takes the crew. But it could be a progress spacecraft, could go in there. So it depends on what it is and where in the program it gets um, put in. But but the um, your thing would go in this container, it would go up to the space station, you would uh, do whatever it needs to do for four months, be returned, and, and uh, then... But uh, does, this, does this have an impact on the, the time of the astronauts when they're there? The, the astronauts would have to install it, and then they leave it alone, and then you get to remote control it from Earth. Um, so if you were um, in, in one of these uh, facilities, in the ice cubes facility, you might be trying to, say manufacture something in the bioreactor express facility you might be crystallizing something you know whether it's i don't know could, could, could be some pharmaceutical drug could be some other material if you, if you can make this substance in space and then crystallize it maybe bring it back to earth and use it i can't even begin to imagine what the things are but there are people out there i know who will and so the astronauts would just put it in those facilities it would do its thing and then four six eight months later it would be returned and um, you'd get it back the offices here mm. at the UK Space Station. Yes. There are a lot of computer screens. Yes. Quite a few people. Yes. How many are they, and what are they doing? <laughs> so the UK Space Agency, we're we're um, a government agency. We are part of the department, which is Business en- Energy Innovation and Skills. But the UK Space Agency, we've got about three hundred staff now. I think there's about 150 based here in Swindon. I honestly don't know now because we've been growing so much. But you can see it's it's just a hot desking environment with with everybody. We've got HR, we've got finance, we've got uh, the people who you know do, do the operations of the organisation. Down the other end of the office, which is where I am, you've got programmes uh, where we deliver the programs to people who are building science instruments to go on missions to Jupiter, to to comets, looking um, after the programs that are building, have built now, the rover that's going to go to Mars, the Rosalind Franklin rover. We've got people who are out there trying to develop the industry. So the, the point of the UK Space Agency is to make sure the UK gets the best out of everything that we do in space. So we support industry, we support academia, um, we, we support government because space does underpin everything we do. Thanks to Libby Jackson and Marco Marengo for talking to me for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. I hope you've got plenty of ideas to enable you to take your science to the International Space Station. Thanks again to Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And Pfeiffer provides all types of vacuum equipment, including hybrid and magnetically levitating turbo pumps, leak detectors and analysis equipment, and vacuum chambers and systems. You can explore all of its products at pfeiffer-vacuum.com.
and next month we'll be exploring physics at the movies. I'm not exactly sure what we'll be talking about in the episode, but I do know that in the Physics World magazine you'll find my interview with Benedict Cumberbatch talking about playing scientists at the movies. Thank you very much for listening. Physics World.